My conversation partner today is uh, someone I find delightful, uh, intellectually, spiritually stimulating, and just slightly intimidating because uh, there's a force of intellect and experience uh, behind the voice you will hear momentarily. Uh, I invited him into this uh, discussion today because of his recent book, Words on Fire, The Power of Incendiary Language and How to Confront It. I know him as Fred, my friend and colleague, uh, but the full author's name, I hope I get this right, Fred Elio, Fred Garcia, do you anglicize it? Uh, Elio is the, the pronunciation from my native Brazil, and that's the pronunciation I use everywhere in the world except in the United States, ah. where, I, where I go by Fred, which is a yes. lot easier. <laughs> of course. But I just love it. I love the way the name looks. I love mm-hmm. the way the name sounds. I would have guessed it. Uh, I've, uh, frankly, I just wasn't putting together Brazil with Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always, I just, you know, I'm one of those... Uh, Americanos ignorantes that, you know, thinks of South America as just one big monolith. Oh, shame on me, because, of course, those are two very different languages. But, Fred, welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. It's a pleasure to have you. And while I know you quite well uh, because of the circles we travel in, uh, other folks don't. So I'm going to give you a formal introduction. May I? Yeah, please. All right. Uh, Professor Garcia is founder and president of the crisis management uh, firm, uh, Lopez Consulting Group. Logos Consulting Group. I'm sorry. You know, put the glasses on. (laughs) It printed it out as Lopez, and I knew it was Logos. Right. And I was thinking, now, wait wait a minute. Wait a minute. That just doesn't sound right. (laughs) So... The uh, apparently, uh, you know, uh, autocorrect or spell check thinks that it's Lopez. So let's just get that straight. It's Logos Consulting Group, and probably for good reason. And frankly, in a minute, I'm going to ask you why you chose Logos, because that's an interesting term in the world I inhabit. Yes. But Professor Garcia teaches leadership, ethics, crisis management, and communication at New York University and Columbia University. For more than 35 years, he has coached more than 400 Fortune 500 CEOs, plus thousands of other high-profile individuals on leadership communications. He's the author of four books, including the one that we're discussing today, Words on Fire. But please tell me the secret behind Logos. So, my graduate work was in ancient Greek philosophy and rhetoric. And in the course of my study of Greek, I not only read Aristotle and Plato, I also read the Christian Testament in Uh, the original Koine Greek. Uh, And we can have a discussion about that offline. Well, Uh, that's why I asked, because the use of logos for word. Yeah, this is not the Gospel of John reference, Uh uh, which which I read and, and I honor, but this is a reference to Aristotle's Art of Rhetoric. Ah. Where where he says that the effective speaker exhibits three different qualities: ethos, which is personal character, pathos, which is emotional connection, and logos, which is intellectual content. Mm. And and as I was thinking about starting my own firm twenty years ago, I didn't want the name of the firm to be my name. I wanted it to be an evocative name. And so, since we are in the language leadership communication business, uh, I chose to make a reference to Aristotle. Now, as, as you know, Rob, I'm very involved in multi-religious organizations around the world, and wherever I go, there's someone who thinks that we are a religious organization because right. of the Gospel of John, <laughs> that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Full confession. Yes. I thought perhaps that was the origin of that, and wondered about it. Uh, But as you explain it now, it makes even more sense. However, I would also say it it comports very nicely to the way I understand the use of the term in the Gospel of John and elsewhere Mm -hmm. in the New Mm -hmm. Testament, Mm -hmm. but also this trio, this trinity Mm -hmm. that you just uh, outlined 
is also very interesting because in the circles I travel in, which are distinctly evangelical, we talk about uh, the triune nature of man, body, soul, and spirit. And of course, we talk about the Trinity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a there's something about threes that's very powerful, even rhetorically uh, powerful. And, and, and Aristotle wrote about that. By the way, so did Demetrius hundreds of years before Aristotle. So, so we, we, we call it the rule of threes in my little part of the world, but the, the Greeks called it the tricolon. Ah, I've got to do some reading on that. Uh, I was trained in homiletics, uh, mm-hmm. the art of preaching, that the most uh, potent outline is always a three-pointer. Yeah, and three and pointer, I have a, three points. I have assigned De Doctrina Christiana on Christian teaching by St. Augustine ah. to my, to my uh, uh, secular clients as a way to better understand leadership communication using the homiletics that Augustine taught. Well, I'm suddenly struck with guilt because I feel like I'm getting very valuable tutelage for nothing here. So, <laughs> I won't keep extracting it from you, but, uh, oh, you could hold forth forever and you would have not only me, but I think every friend listening uh, to this podcast uh, it just enraptured uh, with your presentation. But we need to get to, to the book. And before yeah. we do that... Will you give us a little personal history? I know you haven't you always been an author. You weren't born an author. Well, maybe in one sense. But uh, you had a life before the life I just, uh, you know, described in your bio. Where'd you come from, Fred Garcia? So, so I was born in Brazil of Brazilian parents. And my dad, as a young man... Uh, had come to the United States and had studied in the United States and had gotten a job uh, working for the United States Army uh, in Monterey, California, teaching at what was then called the Army Language School. It's now called the Defense Language Institute. And he was preparing U.S. Army, mostly officers, uh, to speak and read Portuguese in order to deploy to South America or to Lisbon or to Angola or to Mozambique, but places in the world that spoke Portuguese back in the 1950s. Uh, and then he, he finished his time in the United States. He went back to, to Brazil. He married my mom, whom he had known before he traveled to the States. And they settled in Rio de Janeiro, and I was born in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, my dad was a professor at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, but you can't make a living as a professor certainly mm-hmm. back then there. Uh, so he supplemented his income by teaching the same people he had taught in Monterey, who had been assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Rio de Janeiro, which was then the capital of Brazil. And, and, and he made more money teaching in the embassy than he did at the university, but he did both. Well, one of those guys who had been a student in Monterey, who was his student again in Rio de Janeiro, was reassigned by the U.S. Army to West Point to teach Portuguese to cadets. And then there was an opening for a civilian professor of languages, and they reached out to my dad, who'd already been vetted by the U.S. Army. So in 1959, when I was two years old, uh, we very quickly packed up and came to the United States. Mm. And my dad taught at the United States Military Academy at West Point for 25 years. Uh, mm. He and my mom were both buried at West Point. Mm. When, when he was here in the early 60s, he got a degree in Portugal in uh, medieval Portuguese poetry. And my mom and I and my younger brothers uh, went back to Brazil for about a year while my dad was getting... Uh, his graduate degree in Portugal, uh, and I was able to forget all of the English I had learned in my previous years. Uh, and when we came uh, back in 1963, literally, we got back to the States one week before first grade, and I got to school, and I didn't speak a word of English, and I had not a clue what was happening in the classroom. And the the nuns at the time, who were very I believe good people, but bad teachers mm. uh, didn't appreciate that I didn't speak English because of the way I look, which is blonde hair, blue eyes, fair skin. Uh, they didn't appreciate that I was from somewhere else. They just thought I was dumb. Mm. And so they social promoted me for four years. And, and, and along the way, uh, I was uh, seen by some mean kids as an opportunity for them to feel important at my expense. And so it mm. began with they, they figured out I was from somewhere else, but, but what began with taunting and uh, belittling and go back to where you came from 
then moved on to pushing and roughhousing, and then it moved on to very significant beatings. Uh, and it's then very from painful. Si- very significant painful. beatings moved on to sexual humiliation. Mm-hmm. And and I do write in my book for the first time that I've ever made it public uh, that you know one of the defining experiences in my life was being held down by six of the big boys and not only hit and punched and kicked with a brick uh, on my head, uh, but also they took turns peeing on me. Mm-hmm. And and that was a defining moment in my feeling of powerlessness. I, I uh, recall, I, I must tell you, I recall reading that. Uh, I think you treat it in the preface, do you? It is in the preface yeah. of, of Words on Fire. And as I was reading it, I had to put it down for a moment. It was I'm so sorry. painful. No, nothing to apologize for. It, it, it's, I could feel that with you, if only in a small way, the way you describe it. Thank you for being that vulnerable, because we oh, all need to you. know that really happened and happens to children. And and, and it did happen to me, and, and my therapist tells me that even now, 50 years after the beatings, uh, I'm still suffering from a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. No doubt. Um, but I, but I'm in, but I'm in good care, and and I have a very supportive circle of family and friends as well. Having said that, uh, by the time I was 11, uh, one of the nuns who was much older than the others and a really good teacher figured out that I wasn't stupid, and she held me after class every day for 90 minutes for mm. an entire year, mm. and she caught me up on the academics, but she also caught me up on English. She had me diagram sentences on the board. But then she had me recite poetry and the Declaration of Independence and Shakespeare. Uh. And she would stand in the back of the room and I'd have to recite in a way that she could hear me. Uh, And then she had me work on my accent. She had me put a marble in my mouth and recite Shakespeare and recite poetry. And she had to understand every syllable. And if she didn't, she'd clap her hands and I'd have to start again. Then a second marble, and then a third marble, and, and then she had me talk with a candle in front of my mouth. Now, Fred, and, Fred, yeah. as beautiful yeah. as that story is, I just have to tell you that every Ashkenazi Jewish um, uh, anxiety gene is triggering. You, you, you never choked on one Sorry. of those marbles, did you? Never did. Never. Oh, did. good. But now, but, now I can relax through the but, rest of the story. <laughs> but, but Sister Gabriel is one of the three heroes in my life. Because she turned me around and she empowered me with English oh. uh, to, to, the, to the point that by the time I was done with her at the end of sixth grade, I was top of my class and the, and the Catholic Church chose to have me skip eighth grade and sent me to a, a high school 40 miles away. There was a magnet school from a 50 mile radius for, for Catholic kids who were going to be the stormtroopers of the faith. Mm-hmm. And and it was an accelerated pre-college program. And just for reference, 98% of the kids who graduated from that high school went to college compared to the local high school where I would otherwise have gone to school, where it was something like 65% of the kids went to college. So, so, so there in that high school, I had another hero, and that was another nun who asked me to join the debating team. And I joined the speech and debate team, and we were competitive, and we this was in Goshen, New York, which is about 55 miles north of the city. I know we where would, it is. We, we, we would take the van into New York every Saturday, and we would debate against the Jesuit high schools and mm. the Dominican mm. high schools, mm. and oh boy, the Jesuits were tough. Yes, and, no and, doubt. And, and by the time I was 15, four years after working with Sister Gabriel, I came in third in the New York City Catholic Forensic League, and the two people who came in first wow. and second were from Jesuit high schools. Uh, Bravo. And, 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 and the, the final part of the turnaround is uh, about uh, a year and a half later, uh, one of my teachers suggested I apply for a job with a local congressman. Uh, you, I know you worked with Congress a lot. Uh, his name was Ben Gilman. He was a Republican mm-hmm. from Middletown, New York. And he was a freshman congressman at the time that I applied for the job, and he didn't know that it's typical to give those prize jobs to donors' kids. Yeah. Uh, so I had to pass an exam. I had to write essays, had to go for interviews. And a couple of days after my 17th birthday, I got a letter to tell me, congratulations, you've been appointed a page in the House of Representatives. Uh-huh. And I got to the House of Representatives on June 1st, 1974. <laughs> As the Watergate hearings, of course, of were course, underway. what timing! 
And, and, and this immigrant kid got to have a front row seat in history. Sure and, and, and the hearings were being held in a secure house office annex about seven blocks from the Capitol. And you know the Capitol well. I do. Uh, we used to go around the Capitol underground in, mm-hmm. in the summer. That's the only way to get around. But this annex you had to go outside. And so most of the senior pages hated being assigned to the annex because they'd have to go outside. So they give me the trash tours where I had to take packages to the House annex. Uh. But I would go to the annex and I would sit in the back of the Judiciary Committee room and there would be Barbara Jordan talking about how no president is above the law. And, yeah. and I had goosebumps just watching this thing play out. And then when Nixon resigned, I waited for the tanks in the streets and the mm-hmm. jets in the air, because in my native Brazil, that's what happened oh, when there was a change sure, of government. Sure. And it didn't come. And then there was a peaceful transfer of power. And I fell in love with this country then. I said, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I want to be involved in that. So I ended up going to college at NYU studying politics and congressional procedure. I worked in Ben Gilman's campaigns for years after that. I got involved in in student government and eventually uh, got a double degree in philosophy and politics. Went to Columbia Graduate School uh, uh, for a not yet completed PhD in ancient Greek philosophy and rhetoric. And then I started working uh, on essentially applied ethics, which became my crisis practice. And and along the way, uh, I needed to prepare people to face the music when they were suffering from ethical lapses or otherwise in crisis. And I developed my leadership communication practice as an adjunct to the crisis practice, which is preparing people for Senate testimony, preparing them to talk to angry shareholders or bondholders or scared employees or community groups that object to a facility in their neighborhood, but essentially preparing people to face the music when the stakes are very high. Mm -hmm. And in, in many ways, my entire career has been an oversimplification and an overcompensation of feeling helpless and powerless because I couldn't make myself understood as a kid. Mm. And, and uh, so I spend my days helping empower other people to be effective with the spoken word and the written word in order to not be marginalized and not be demeaned and to be able to exercise their own power in constructive ways that help them, but also make the world a better place. Well, the whole package is so terribly Bonhoeffrian. Uh, You're in good company uh, in this galaxy uh, with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course. Indeed, His magnum opus being ethics. Yeah. And uh, it was really the core of his own practice, if you will. Mm -hmm. including uh, the power of language. Uh, And he used it quite effectively, both uh, spoken and in writing, uh, not only to survive, uh, but to resist uh, the Nazi terror. Uh, So, so much to talk about there. That is an exhilarating story. Thank you for sharing it with us. If anyone missed a part of it, you'll read uh, a good part of that in uh, the preface to uh, words on fire. So, uh, and now it seems like a, a long time ago I read your book because I've read a few since then and, and my mind has been in so many other places, but you brought it back vividly. I lived that and with you as you wrote it. And anyone who's an author knows about the hero's arc. I would say that's quite a heroic arc of a story, Fred. It's very kind. And so much of... Uh, what you carry in you and with you uh, is in this book. Uh, This is an excellent, timely work. It's scholarly, but it is certainly not dull in an academic sense. Uh, You you bring it alive, uh, wonderful stories. It was at times entertaining, maddening, vexing, exhilarating, all of it. I, I had all of those feelings. Mostly, I felt more equipped to meet the challenges of our time after reading it. Uh, and, and I think part of that, if, if I may be presumptuous, is that you're the rare combination 
of the scholar and practitioner. And I would say that's who Bonhoeffer was. He was very much that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, again, uh, you're in good company with our, our namesake and he with you. But let's dive into sure. the book. Uh, and I'm going to use, if I may, uh, the table of contents as a kind of outline to our mm-hmm. uh, discussion. And you start out with communication, in part one, communication and consequences. You talk about the power of communications. Uh, I'd like you to spend a little time on stochastic terrorism and lone wolves. But before that, how can we understand the impact and danger that's presented in language, incendiary language as a whole? Give us the big picture as well as the, the, the micro. So, so let me start with the big picture, and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring it down to, to a more manageable level. My starting premise is that communication has power and has the power to influence outcomes and the power to move people. And one of the things that I do in my academic work and in my client work and my research is I study patterns of influence and patterns of audience reaction and how leaders use communication to move people. Mostly, most of my work has been how communication moves people to positive outcomes and how leaders can harness that power to make their organization more competitive, to make their team more productive, to make their life more valuable in in the things that matter to them. And, Communication has the power to call out the better angels of our nature, but communication also has the power to call out the worst demons within us. And and what I do in the beginning of the book is I describe how language has consequence, usually positive consequence. And I profile three leaders in chapter one who used communication as well as other leadership skills when circumstances were very, very, very risky and how they were able to lead their nations through adversity to positive outcomes. I start with FDR, and his very first words as president, that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, and he connected with the citizenry and, and was honest with them and said, we got a lot of challenge ahead of us, we got a lot of work to do, but we can do it together, it's our common struggle, it's our common destiny. I then focus on uh, the first weeks of Winston Churchill's tenure, and he was named prime minister of a divided government and a divided country at a time where half the population of Great Britain did not want to go to war, uh, wanted a negotiated settlement with Hitler, uh, and he was able to use communication to rally people to support his goal of total and complete victory, not just some form of appeasement that keeps the Germans on the other side of the channel. And then finally, I talk about JFK, who saw the existential threat to the United States and the Soviet Union and their dominance of space and who decided to up the ante when they beat us with a human being in space. And that up the ante was the goal to, by the end of the decade, landing a human being safely on the moon and bringing a human being safely back to Earth. And I talk about how each of those three leaders use the power of what is known as framing, which is the creation of context. It's description of the why to move people to sacrifice in the challenge and to move ahead to a better outcome. I then talk about how malign leaders can use the same techniques to divide people, to cause people to fear someone or to fear something, or to cause people to diminish the value or the dignity of others. And so I show in chapter one just how that works. In chapter two, I inventory 12 forms of communication that have historically preceded acts of violence, ranging from mild violence and insult and name-calling and property damage right through hate crimes to acts of terror, to acts of genocide. And and I document how the Nazis used all 12 of those forms of language, uh, how the Rwanda Hutu used 10 of those 12, and I turn them into what I call the playbook that helps us see the pattern. And the thing about patterns is they have explanatory power to help us make sense of the past, but they also have predictive power to help us anticipate the consequence of that pattern being unchecked. 
And one of the things I point to is how these forms of language and one form of imagery have been used by leaders in ways that cause division, that leads to declines in empathy, that lead to what the Holocaust Museum Simon Scout Center for the Prevention of Genocide calls dangerous speech, which they define as speech that conditions a society to accept, condone, and commit acts of violence against out-groups or out-rivals or out-critics. In other words, the other. And And this is where you treat uh, the whole dehumanizing effect of this kind of language. Maybe we could uh, dwell there just for a minute on why dehumanization is such an important element in this uh, nefarious formula. So, so the most, the first play in what I call the, the, the playbook, uh, is the dehumanization of a group. And I draw on not only the Simon Scout Center for the Prevention of Genocide, but also on the work of the Yale philosopher Jason Stanley. And they both collectively point to this pattern. And that is when a leader persistently dehumanizes a group, whether it's an ethnic group or a gender group or a sexual orientation group or a racial group, or just a group of people who disagree with us. The dehumanization has a number of consequences. The first of which is the dehumanization lessens the capacity for empathy among the speaker himself or herself and among society at large. And that lessening of the capacity for empathy is precisely what creates those social conditions where people begin to at least condone violence or accept violence against those who have been dehumanized. Now, I point to the pattern in Nazi Germany of dehumanizing Jews and others and calling them, uh, calling them parasites, calling them vermin, calling them rats, calling them germs. Uh, and that dehumanization had, even as Bonhoeffer experienced, profound consequences in Europe. But I also show that that dehumanization took place in Rwanda when the Hutu used the vocabulary of vermin to refer to the Tutsi. They actually called them what in the Rwandan language is uh, inyemzi, which means cockroach. Mm. And they're and they're just as uh, the Nazis had their doctrine against miscegenation and things like that. The Hutu also had that, and they said a cockroach cannot give birth to a butterfly. And they had their own equivalent of the Nuremberg Laws, and that was banning marriage or even sexual relations between Hutu and Tutsi men and women because the Tutsi were dehumanized and said they're no better than vermin. And regrettably, we've also seen that kind of language historically in the American political system as well. And and of all of the forms of language that have consequences that lead to acts of violence, uh, one, the, the most powerful one is dehumanization. Now, now let, me, let me point to something I don't write about in the book except tangentially because it isn't the explicit target of the book. But, but let's play out dehumanization. President Trump persistently dehumanized migrants who were seeking legal asylum in the United States. He called them animals. He called their presence among us an infestation. And at rallies, he would say, oh, Nancy Pelosi says they're not animals, they're human beings. Believe me, they're animals, they're animals. And the crowd would chant, animals, animals, animals. Well, what is the consequence of people beginning to use the language of animals to talk about a group of human beings like migrants trying to get legal asylum in the United States? Well, what do you do with animals? You put them in cages. Mm. You separate them from their offspring and you don't Mm. return their offspring to them. And so we saw beginning in early 2018, the public policy of the United States was to separate children, including infants, from their parents without any mechanism to keep track of who were the kids of which parents. So to this day, we have about 5,000 kids who have been separated from their parents. Many of those parents have since been deported to their home countries, but the kids are still here. Now, I believe that is a crime against humanity, but that's beyond the scope of my book. 
But well, that it was is certainly, tangible. It was yeah, certainly right. found to be uh, in post-World War II Europe. A- absolutely. And, I, and I'm, I'm not making up the phrase crime against humanity. I know there is a legal doctrine about what that means. And I believe that what happened at the southern border in the United States, as the public policy of the United States, not as some border guards going rogue, but as the formal public policy of the United States, explicitly described by the attorney general, enforced by both the Secretary of, of Homeland Security and the Secretary of Health and Human Services, and then praised by the president, mm-hmm. that that is the consequence of dehumanization. And we see it among us. And, and, and you know, Rob, you know from your work with and about Bonhoeffer is people constantly ask, how could good Germans have allowed that to happen? I ask the question, how could good Americans have allowed that to happen? And the answer yeah. is, that is the consequence of systematic dehumanization of a group of people. And it continues, of course. In fact, I'm with you 100%. I just posted this morning, actually I lined up for a future post, uh, I think it hits tomorrow morning, uh, a comparison of what you just described at our southern border, what's happening there with the separation of children from their parents, the children uh, being uh, detained in the cages, they're exposed, they're traumatized, of course, and they're exposed now uh, to a ravaging disease, and then they are secreted out of the country and uh, and reintroduced into danger, grave danger yeah. for them, yeah. uh, putting their yeah. lives at risk. That's what's happening now, but compare that to what happened after the war in Europe, uh, after World War II, when we worked with the United Nations uh, to... Uh, to find these, uh, to find children who had been yeah. separated, sadly, the some of them people. permanently, yeah. the displaced right. children, mm-hmm. and created camps. And it's it's just wonderful to read uh, how these children were treated, and in some cases reunited, either with their parents or with family members, and they were given psychological and, of course, medical care, uh, and on and on it goes. So, in other words. We once did the opposite as a country. We're supposed to be the good guys. <laughs> Doing good things. And, yeah. and what you described is certainly not good. And neither, I'm reading a book, maybe you've come across it, called um, uh, the, uh, the Little Dead Hand. I think it's La Manita Muerta uh, by a survivor of the Pinochet uh, regime in Chile, in the, mm-hmm. this is a story that goes back to the early 1970s. Yeah. And the terms that were used there to dehumanize yeah. were leftist, communist, rebel. Yeah. We're hearing some of that now. We are. And, and, and if I may, one other form of language that the Nazis used, the Rwandans used, and that the current president is using, is the language of contamination bringing disease into the country. Mm, 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 and and he, mm. he said that about the about what he called the caravan of migrants coming to the southern border. And he said they're, they're, they're diseased, they're carrying polio, they're carrying smallpox, they're carrying HIV, of course, no evidence of any of that. But, but since March, even as recently as this morning, the president has referred to COVID-19 as the China virus mm-hmm. or the Chinese virus or even more insultingly, Kung flu. Mm-hmm. And, and the World Health Organization cautions that we should not name a disease after a country because it stigmatizes people. But the FBI, starting in April, sounded the alarm of a surge of hate crimes against Asians and Asian Americans mm-hmm because of the attribution that they were infected with the disease and bringing it to the United States. So this happened in a Target store in Texas in April. A nine-year-old boy was slashed across the face with a sharp knife when his father came to his rescue. The father was slashed across the face with a sharp knife. They both needed a dozen stitches. When the police arrested the woman who slashed their faces and asked, why did you do that? She said, I'm protecting the United States from the China virus. Mm A woman in Brooklyn, a Chinese-American woman, was walking up the steps to her apartment when a neighbor who had been waiting for her threw acid in her face and screamed at her that she was bringing the China virus into the United States. Mm -hmm. It is that kind of language that puts communities at risk. 
And the president, to this day, as recently as this morning, was repeating the phrase China virus, Chinese virus, and Kung flu. And his supporters cheer and rally and repeat that. But that also creates the conditions where violence against Asians gets more and more accepted. We so often go back to the Nazi catastrophe and think of it as a unique phenomenon. It was not. It's been repeated over and over, many times over. Mm -hmm. It continues to this moment in time. I think it, 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 of course, has happened in the United States. It's been part of our history. But rarely is it as grotesque, uh, as flagrant as it is now. And, and I, I detect, even among the president's ardent supporters, people I know who work for him, who report to him face-to-face uh, -face on a routine basis, are becoming uncomfortable with it. Mm -hmm. So when we feel uncomfortable, it's certainly not enough. There were plenty of people in Germany who were uncomfortable with Adolf Hitler and, uh, and, and his minions who used this language. They just didn't say anything. How, mm -hmm. how can we push back? How can we neutralize and replace this kind of toxic language? So the, the first thing I'll say, Rob, is thank you for saying that when you finished the book, you felt equipped. Because my purpose in writing the book was to equip engaged citizens and civic leaders and clergy and public officials. Uh, first, to recognize the patterns. And second, to know how to confront the patterns and, the, and how to confront the leaders who are using language that puts people at risk. Now, in the book... I profile three leaders, as, and as you know, Rob, including you. Thank uh, you. Used, I'm deeply honored by that. Well, thank you. Uh, who used language that had that effect and who were called on it. And, and all three of you in your own ways and in your own times took that challenge seriously and took steps to stop doing it and to, in your case, devote the rest of your life to making it less bad and, and preventing that kind of thing from happening in the future. And, and I honor what all three of you did on being called on it. And by the way, the others were George W. Bush and John McCain, mm. uh, all honorable people who just went too far in the language. People who mattered to them made them aware of the danger. And the three of you stepped back and stopped doing it. We need people to be able to have those kinds of conversations. Now, we've seen examples of that just in the last few weeks. So, for example, you may recall in late May, early June, the president was talking about mobilizing the active duty military to keep peace in American cities. And Secretary Esper, on a call with governors, the defense secretary, Mark Esper, on a call with governors said, don't worry, governors, the U.S. military is here to dominate the battle space that is your cities. That combination of mobilizing the active duty military and referring to American cities as battle space to be dominated was too much for retired Secretary of Defense James Mattis, yes. who, when he, when he resigned as Secretary of Defense on a policy dispute with the president, vowed that he would not criticize a sitting president. And he was even on a book tour where he was invited to criticize the president, and he chose not to. But, but the combination of mobilizing the active duty military and dominate the battle space was too much. So he published in The Atlantic an admonition. And he first said to Secretary Esper, you cannot, I will not allow you to use the language of battle space to be dominated when you're talking about American cities. That's completely inappropriate for Secretary of Defense, and you need to stop that. To his credit, Secretary Esper agreed and said, you're right, I'm not going to do that. I was mistaken. I will not do that. We will not mobilize the active duty military, and I will stop referring to, to it as battle space. Then he turned to the president Secretary Mattis turned to the president and said, and Mr. President, in all my time on your cabinet, I never once heard you use language in ways that unite, but only in ways that divide. And you are a danger to the United States. That's the kind of clarity we need in confronting this kind of dangerous language. We saw a similar example just last week when Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, in my beloved House of Representatives, 
was leaving the floor. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, was was walking up the steps to the floor of the Capitol, uh, to the floor of the House of Representatives when she passed on the Capitol steps uh, another congressman uh, who not only insulted her uh, and said that she was crazy or, or, or some equivalent language, but also used two very offensive words at her, which I won't repeat on this podcast. Mm-hmm. But but they were the, the words you're not supposed to repeat at all, uh, and certainly not to, to a, a colleague who's a woman. And uh, Ocasio-Cortez didn't say anything publicly about that until the congressman, uh, Ted Yoho, uh, bungled an apparent apology on the floor of the House of Representatives. I watched it. Uh, Mm. uh, Yeah. And then uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez took to the floor and she named the pattern. She even said, and this is a pattern. (laughs) This is a pattern to look out for. And it's a pattern that dehumanizes women. And it's a pattern that gives other men permission to continue in the dehumanizing of women. And, and that includes violence against women. And, and Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez modeled how a civic leader, how a public official can hold colleagues accountable for that kind of language. It's really worth watching that exchange. On, uh, well, it wasn't quite an exchange. I don't think he was actually <laughs> present. It wasn't, uh, they weren't together at that moment. But when you compare the two, and when I heard the congressman uh, Yoho offer what was called his apology. My pastoral judgment on that, had I been with him, had I been his pastor, I would have said, Congressman, the only problem is that in your apology, you never apologized. And her response to him is really worth watching. Whether you like her her politics or not I, is I, I don't agree irrelevant. with some of her politics, but, but she irrelevant. modeled the naming of the pattern. She did indeed, and for a young uh, leader, uh, wow, it was just outstanding. We can learn a lot from that. And, and you give us guidance, uh, because, you know, I'm thinking we have a lot of people who listen in uh, who are clergy, so they have mm-hmm. pulpits. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are bloggers, writers, authors, uh, so they have their keyboards or pens. Maybe they still use them. I don't know. On occasion, mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we certainly have influentes. We have folks who have spheres of influence. And you give us, the reason I said what I did about being equipped is because you don't just leave us with general ideas. You give us really practical assistance. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that element of the book? Sure. So, so one of the things I do in the book is I lay out the patterns so that you can recognize them when you see them. Now, now let, me, let me say the language is the beginning of the pattern, but it's not the pattern itself. Uh, there are three other things that happen that lead people to commit violence. The first is they're exposed to the language. The second is, according to the Simon Scout Center for the Prevention of Genocide, there's a four, there are four other factors that lead to society condoning violence. The first is a speaker who's charismatic. The second is a form of communication, a channel of communication that reaches lots of people. The third is social conditions that are already fragmented where people are feeling vulnerable. And then finally, people who are predisposed to readily otherize some group or some uh, uh, other subset of critics or rivals. Uh, so, So, when we hear the language and we see that the speaker and the audience fit that description, that should send off alarm bells. But that's not enough. There's also what uh, Randy Borum, a professor of uh, intelligence studies at South Florida University, describes as a four-step process that leads to what he calls a terrorist mindset. And that is observing a social condition and saying, that's not right. Moving beyond that to say, that's not fair. Moving beyond that to say it's their fault, and then finally concluding they're evil, they're less than human. And the way Professor Borum describes it is people then see themselves as holy warriors in a righteous struggle against the evil people who are not human. That creates the mindset where violence becomes possible. So we have to be on the lookout or people reaching that conclusion. One of the things I note about President Trump is he doesn't lead people to that conclusion. He actually uses that vocabulary. That's not right. That's not fair. It's their fault. They're less than human. They're evil. Yeah, it's explicit. Uh, yeah, he, nothing which, subtle which is un- about it. 
which is unprecedented in American presidential leadership. The final stage is the work of Ramon uh, Spodge and and uh, a, a sociologist named Ham uh, at uh, Indiana State University, and they describe what activates people from that mindset to actually committing violence. And the first is uh, uh, some blending of personal and political grievance. The second is affinity with an extremist group. And in the book, most of the incidents of violence that I describe in the book had to do with white supremacy. So people who were followers of the ideology of white nationalism and white supremacy are very active uh, in, in recent years in committing that violence. The third is an enabler. And that enabler can be someone who's long dead like Hitler, and it can be someone who's currently alive uh, like Trump, or it could be some ideology uh, itself. The fourth is uh, some uh, event uh, that uh, gives somebody the reason to want to commit the act of violence. And then about 70% of them broadcast their intent as well. So they will, they will make it known ahead of time. So we look out for the language, we look out for the four conditions that lead to society accepting violence, we look out for the transition from it's not right, it's not fair, it's their fault, they're evil, to people who are manifesting the behaviors of following an extremist ideology and having uh, being inspired by an enabler and then broadcasting their intent. So, so when you think of the language the social conditions that cause that language to have stickiness in society, the the transition from it's not right to it's not fair to it's their fault, they're less than human, and then the five-step activation model that Hammond Spige described, you see that that precisely tracks the behavior of the tree of life shooter, Robert Bowers. Hmm. And and one of the things about Bowers is that he broadcast his intent. And and this was in the, the very heated midterm election cycle two years ago, where the president was was at rallies 30 to 35 times per rally, talking about the, the migrants trying to get into the United States as animals, as as uh, evil, as dangerous, uh, that, as being funded by George Soros, which, as you know, is white supremacist code for an international Jewish conspiracy. Exactly. And and that would be picked up in the white supremacist chat sites. And and this particular white supremacist, Robert Bowers, picked up on that language. And he, he actually tweeted, uh, he actually gabbed, he was kicked off Twitter. Twitter. He, he posted on social media about 12 days before the shooting, said, I see that they stopped calling them illegal aliens. They call them invaders. I like this. And then he, he put posts on social media, about 65 posts in the next 12 days, about the invasion funded by the Jewish banking interests. And then he posted about uh, the, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, HIAS, and their fundraising at a number of synagogues, including Tree of Life. And he said, thank you, HIAS, for letting us know where you're raising money so we know what to do. And then two hours before he went into uh, the Tree of Life synagogue, he said, uh, Hyas likes to bring in invaders to slaughter our people. I can't stand by and let our people get slaughtered. Screw the optics, I'm going in. And then he went in and he shot up a bunch of people in the synagogue. Optics, yes. by the way, is is a, a word that was being debated in white national circles about how to recruit more followers to the white supremacist cause. And, and, and the theory was explicit acts of violence are probably not the way to do it. He said, screw the optics, I'm going in. Mm. But if you if you track that pattern, you see that every single one of the steps in that pattern you could recognize in Robert Bowers. Which brings saw, me, yeah, if I go. may, yeah, uh, just yeah. brings me to a point you make uh, in Chapter 3 under that very intriguing term, stochastic terrorism, <laughs> that we look at these things as being terribly random, um, unpredictable, but you make a different argument in the book, that these aren't necessarily unpredictable uh, outcomes. They're not. And and after 9-11, the phrase stochastic terrorism was coined by a statistician. Uh, and, and the word stochastic is a reference from statistics and physics about apparently random things still being predictable. 
And and what stochastic terrorism, according to the national security and, and intelligence and law enforcement literature, stochastic terrorism is the phrase that professionals in the security services use to describe acts of violence that are triggered by language that are statistically predictable, even if they're not individually predictable. So you can't predict that this individual will commit this act of violence against that target, but you can predict that this kind of language has the effect of inspiring people to commit that violence. And the people who commit the violence are acting on the language that they heard with all of the other social conditions that I mentioned. The reason I uh, thought that was so important uh, yeah. for you to make that point uh, in the book, and by the way, if uh, anyone has joined late in the conversation, we're talking about the book Words on Fire, The Power of Incendiary Language and How to Confront It by my friend Fred Garcia. You'll see it as Elio Fred Garcia on the front of the book. The reason I thought that was so important to make that point is because the reaction to this kind of violence is often, you know, we were shocked. We were surprised. Nobody knew. Nobody could have predicted that. No one saw that coming. But that doesn't have to be the state of affairs. You give us, you give us uh, techniques. You, you give us pointers. You give us inventories. You give us a knowledge base to help us see if, if this happens, this will result. And, and, and thank you for saying that. And, and what I do in the book is I try to take this concept and make it more accessible. So, so the word stochastic just it, it, it shuts off discussion. People don't know what it means. Their eyes glaze over. They don't want to hear about it. Not for me. I was immediately intrigued. But I know. <laughs> well, I know. I'm the odd guy out. <laughs> we we both are. We, we, and I suspect most of us on this podcast have a, a heavy appetite for that kind of thing. They appreciate but, but, you introducing a new, uh, you know, a new term in the lexicon. I can tell you that much. But, but for those who have a short attention span, including television news, uh, you can't have a discussion on stochastic terrorism. Of course. You're going to lose your audience. So, so what I have done is I've approached that phenomenon from a different direction. And that is, who is it who is triggered to commit violence and what is it that triggers them? And, and I, don't, I don't invent this term. I, I have a new way of putting it together. In the law enforcement vernacular, individuals who commit acts of violence up to and including terrorism – but who are not directed by an authority to commit the violence are referred to as lone wolves. And, and the most famous one in the United States in our lifetime is Timothy McVeigh, who, who blew up the murder. Not a Muslim, by the way. No. I think it's important to point that out. Very not important to point a that Muslim. out. And, and when, when McVeigh blew up the federal building, in, in Oklahoma City, the largest terrorist attack in the United States before 9-11, he was acting on his own. He chose his target on his own. He equipped himself on his own, and he executed it on his own with just one guy helping him. Unlike, say, al-Qaeda, which directed the 9-11 terrorists, chose the target, equipped them. The 9-11 targets were, t terrorists were not lone wolves. Timothy McVeigh was a lone wolf. And, and he was triggered by a number of other things. Uh, but, but what I have done is I've taken the, what law enforcement already calls the lone wolf, and I've dissected what is it that motivates people from being latent uh, uh, carriers of a grievance to actively committing acts of violence. And it is specifically that social phenomenon of the language and the messenger and the audience being easily activated and going through the it's not right, it's not fair, it's their fault, they're evil, and then the language activating. There's a phenomenon that you're well aware of in American politics, spending so much time on Capitol Hill, uh, and that is dog whistle politics. Mm -hmm. And dog whistle refers to a, a sound that is audible only to dogs but not to humans. And the metaphor that's used in politics is language that has an apparently benign meaning to most people but has a particular meaning to other people. So the most common of those is, for example, states' rights, uh, which 
know, who wouldn't be in favor of states having rights? But when it is used in American politics, it really means states being able to essentially ignore constitutional protections. Mm-hmm. But but that's a that's a commonly known phenomenon known as a dog whistle. I say there's something similar ha- happening when a latent carrier of a grievance is activated to commit violence. And so I refer to the language that has the capacity to provoke, provoke violence as a lone wolf whistle. And those who commit violence based on that language, I call lone wolf whistle violence. So that includes random hate crimes against targets of opportunity. So so you hear Asia flu, Asia virus, and you see someone Asian and you just lash out at them. That's lone wolf whistle violence. But what happened with the Tree of Life synagogue and what happened with the mail bomber and what happened with the New Zealand shooter or what happened with the El Paso shooter is what I call lone wolf whistle terrorism. And that is organized, planned acts of symbolic violence against symbolic targets for ideological reasons. And the, the El Paso uh, shooter said that he was protecting Texas from an invasion of Mexicans. Mm-hmm. The, the Tree of Life uh, shooter said that he was protecting whites from the Jewish-funded invasion of brown people into the United States. And the bomber believed that he was protecting the president from critics who he issued death threats against in order to protect his hero, the president. In all of these instances, the, the act of violence was committed by a lone wolf, and the signal they got is what activated them to commit that violence. So I referred to it, it was previously called stochastic terrorism, as lone wolf whistle violence and lone wolf whistle terrorism. The other challenge with stochastic terrorism, it doesn't anticipate the continuum of violence up to terrorism. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it ignores hate crimes. It ignores uh, go back to where you came from taunting, uh, which I can attest from my own personal experience. That's how it started with me before they started then pushing me around and then kicking me and hitting me with a brick and then worse. That's the starting point, but there's a continuum of escalation that we need to recognize. And and as you say, one of the defenses that people who use that language use is, oh, I can't control every crazy person who might misinterpret what I'm saying. And my argument is, oh, actually you can. (laughs) That, that, That you can anticipate that this pattern has consequence and we need to take that pattern seriously, and we need to hold those who use that language accountable for the consequences of their language. Now, the other thing I hear a lot of is, well, what about free speech? And my response is, there is free speech, but there isn't consequence free speech. Hmm. And and just as you can be held accountable for violation of trademark and copyright, and you say, oh, wait a minute, free speech. No, that doesn't help you. You can also be held accountable for explicit inducements of violence. Uh, that lead to violence, and you could be held accountable for other breaches of public order caused by speech. Uh, the government has a right to regulate the time, place, and manner of speech. That's why we have parade permits. Uh, what about free speech? Well, there's not consequence free speech. And so what I'm calling for is for engaged citizens to recognize the pattern, and once they see the pattern, to name it without euphemism, to name the likely consequence of that communication without euphemism, and then to let the people who use that language know that they will be held accountable for the consequence. We saw that with Secretary Mattis. We saw that with uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez in the book. I show how we saw it with President George W. Bush. We saw it with Senator John McCain. And and frankly, to your credit, Rob, we saw it with you as well. And, And the more we can point to the pattern, the more responsible leaders can see it and say, ah, that was not my intention, but I see the validity of that. Let me take a step back and not do that. That would be a fine outcome, just having people stop using that language. It would indeed. And Fred Garcia, I must tell you uh, how enriched uh, I am personally uh, just by reading you, by listening to you, thank you for the very good work that you do. You know, some of what I did, and I thank you for including me, although I, I've, I don't really feel worthy of that, but I receive it as a great honor. 
uh, from you that you would include me uh, in, in, in your study here. Uh, but so much of what I did, I would say, was more instinctive. And you've helped me to understand why it was so important for me to do what I did and for all of us to do the same when we can and in whatever way we can. I've been talking with Fred Garcia, president of Logos Consulting, and we've been talking about his work that will enrich uh, your understanding of our times and equip you to meet the challenge of our times, I think, in the same way it did for me. Words on fire, the power of incendiary language and how to confront it by Elio, spell that H-E-L-I-O. Some people say Helio, I'm sure, Fred. <laughs> they do. <laughs> but it, it just is, it's a lovely name. Elio Fred Garcia. You can find out more about Fred and his book at wordsonfire.net. Wordsonfire.net. Wow, Fred, uh, you are doing work that improves the world, to borrow a religious phrase. Thank you for that good work. Thank you for what you dedicate to it. Thanks for all this time that you've spent with me and the friends of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Uh, folks, you're going to find information on Fred, uh, on the work he does, and on the book, Words on Fire, uh, at our website. But go right now to wordsonfire.net. Find out how you can get the book. Let's read it together. Let's talk about it into the future. And Fred, when this plague has passed by, uh, I look forward to being with you personally, and maybe we'll nab you for something we're doing at uh, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute uh, so that our friends can really enjoy your presence uh, and what you impart to all of us. It's just been great talking, and I can't wait to have our next conversation. Fred yeah. Garcia, president of Logos and author of Words on Fire. And Rob, let me thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and, and with your audience, but thank you also for modeling the responsible behavior, and thank you also for the work that you're doing in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. It's very important, especially these days. And I look forward to being able to raise a glass of whatever with you when you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's do that, uh, Fred. Uh, folks, get it. Words on fire. The Power of Incendiary Language and How to Confront It. Usually the publisher is right on, uh, it's Radius. It's Radius uh, Book Group. Yeah, that's it. Radius Book Group out of New York. Uh, can they get it directly from you, Fred? They, they can get it. They can order from wordsonfire.net. Uh, and if they want to reach out to me, I'm, I'm happy to, to direct them to where they can find it otherwise. Great. Well, thank you for making yourself accessible, folks. Mm -hmm. uh, be measured <laughs> because <laughs> oh, reach Fred's out. got a lot of folks uh, tracking him down. So do be measured, but uh, do visit wordsonfire.net. And uh, wow, Fred, I'm going to pick up the book again and refresh uh, uh, what I read in it uh, the first go around uh, because. We're in a time where we need it. We need it desperately. And you know what? At the expense of going way over time here and taxing you just a little bit more, may I ask you just this? Yeah. There's going to be an outcome to this election coming up in yeah. uh, November. And either uh, Donald Trump is going to be reelected uh, or Joe Biden is going to be elected. Can, can you offer any prediction as to what you see coming next vis-a-vis -vis what we've just discussed? I can predict, based on the patterns, that as the president gets more and more desperate, he intensifies the language. He invents a threat that is artificial. He exaggerates it. He then takes extraordinary steps in an apparent attempt to neutralize it. He did that with the caravan where he mobilized the military. But the, the way you know that he was insincere is the purported threat of the caravan 
in October of 2018, was uh, 2,000 miles away from the U.S. border when he mobilized the military. They were going to San Diego, and he sent the military to Texas. So it was purely security theater. We are seeing security theater in Portland, uh, and now he is ginning up a false threat about uh, fraud in mail-in ballots. Uh, All of that is part of his playbook. All of that is predictable. He will find a way to invent an artificial threat, ratchet up the danger, and then do unprecedented things in order to apparently confront the danger. It is pure theater. It is not genuine. And we need to recognize it for what it is. And be prepared properly for it. Uh, Folks, if you want to be properly prepared... Get Fred's book, Words on Fire, The Power of Incendiary Language and How to Confront It. I feel better prepared for it, Fred. I, 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 I hope you're wrong. I'm afraid you are quite right. You know your science. You know your subject. And we must be prepared. So let's prepare ourselves. Let's not be caught unprepared. Let's prepare and let's meet the challenge it has been met before it can be met again fred thank you for helping us do just that it's been a pleasure an absolute joy fred garcia thanks a lot for spending time with me